There are two um, readings today. Uh, the first one is uh, from Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, which can be pa- found on page 1014 in the Church Bibles. It's also in the leaflet and on the screen. And then the next reading um, is from Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So I'll start with a Mark reading. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the next passage from uh, Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, is on page 1130 um, in the Church Bibles. Therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into, out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. As Cameron said, I uh, used to call this my home church. I've been gone for about four and a half years now, I suppose. Um, 
My wife and I and my family spent most of that time living in Melbourne, um, but it's great to be back here with you this morning. We're just about to head into Easter, aren't we? I don't know if you realise that. For me, it was a bit of a surprise as well that Easter is already upon us. And this Easter time, Trinity, as a network of churches, is looking at the series that Cameron introduced before, Imagine a World Without Easter. I wonder what you think the world would be like if there was no Easter. What does it mean for you? Perhaps without Easter there's no hope, no purpose. Perhaps death does win. Or maybe you don't think on those sort of terms at all. Maybe it just means that there'll be no chocolate to eat next weekend. This morning, I want to talk to you and and think through with you about what it might mean, or what hope might mean, and how Easter brings us hope. And my prayer is that over this Easter period, that you would come to know Jesus better, that you'd see him for who he really is. And this morning I want to show you that he is a man on a mission, a mission that brings us confident hope. That's where we're going this morning. But as we think about hope, hope's one of those words that's kind of hard to put your finger on, isn't it? It's a hard word to pin down. In my family I've got young kids and as the clock gets closer to seven o'clock at night, they hope desperately sometimes that I will have the energy to read them one more chapter of their famous five books. Some of you will know I used to be an engineer and I studied engineering at university. Um, In those first few years as an engineer out of high school, you can generally sort of pick the engineers at university. They're the ones who you can tell like maths by the way that they dress. You know, the ones with the calculators in their top pocket and the pens next to them. You know, I had some good friends at university and we were, we were united as engineers in the hope, not that we'd one day have girlfriends, but that just one day we might talk to a girl. That was our great hope at university. I wonder what it is that you hope for today. You know, perhaps you're hoping the world will never end. Perhaps you're hoping that you'll be one day united with those that you love or that things in this world will be put right. And as you think about your hopes for this world, what is it that grounds your hope? Because sometimes our hopes are just like vague ideas, aren't they? And if we pressed and someone asked us, why do you hope for that? It's often very hard to give them an answer. Well, this morning as we talk about hope, I want to give you sort of a working definition of what hope might be. I've got it in your leaflets. If you find the insert there, it's at point number one. I want to suggest this morning that hope is a full assurance and a confident expectation of good things that are to come. So in other words, hope is not just crossing your fingers, hoping that someone will read you Famous Five or something like that. Hope is assured Hope is confident, confident that it will bring good things. And I think that's what we see as we read about Jesus, the man on a mission who has come to pay our ransom. So if you've still got your Bibles open, can you look at Mark chapter 10? I want us to start with verses 32 to 34. And that's at point two on your leaflet. 
We're talking about hope and a man on a mission. So we're reading in the book of Mark, and I want to give you a little bit of background to Mark before we, before we get into it. Mark was probably the first gospel that was written. It's certainly the shortest gospel that we have, and it's the gospel that moves along at really rapid pace. Mark's favourite words are things like suddenly or immediately. And up until this point in Mark, Jesus has been making his way through Israel. He's been teaching people things like divorce. He's been blessing the children. He's been asking a rich man to come and follow him. And now in verse 32, we see him on the way to Jerusalem. So can I encourage you to read along with me in verse 32? They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. See that Jesus is leading the way and he's going to Jerusalem. As Mark puts it, I sort of get this mental picture of Jesus like striving along. He's resolutely walking on this path to Jerusalem. And behind him, it seems to me like a few steps back are the disciples. And even further back is the crowd of people sort of struggling almost to keep up with this man. He's a man on a mission. But it's no holiday road trip, is it? There's no packets of minties being shared along on this journey. The disciples are astonished and the people are afraid. Why? Well, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the place where prophets go to die. And perhaps it's the fear of persecution that slows down the steps of the disciples, or perhaps they just see this man, Jesus, they see him with such awe that they aren't quite sure how to follow along behind. A man who's in control of his destiny, and he's walking resolutely on the path towards his death in Jerusalem. And so how does Jesus respond to his uneasy disciples? Well, read along with me from verse 33. He says, We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Have you ever wondered who Jesus is? Well, here we see that he is a man who is certain of his future. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows he'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He knows they'll condemn him to death, that they'll mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And he knows three days later he will rise. He's a man on a mission who knows his destiny. And Mark, our writer of the gospel, wants us to know this. He wants us to be crystal clear. This is a man on a mission who knows his destiny. See, at this point in the story, Jesus has twice before already predicted his death. If you're a numbers person, if you've got some of that engineer in you, just like me, these predictions occur in the same sort of pattern. So in chapter 8, verse 31... In chapter 9, verse 31, and here for the third time in chapter 10, nearly verse 31, Jesus tells us what's going to happen to him. 
If you've ever wondered, was Jesus' death an accident? Or maybe you might be thinking, well, that man Jesus, he just got caught up in something bigger than what he could handle. And here Mark is showing us that Jesus knew what would happen to him. He knew that heading to Jerusalem would mean his death. But because God's favour rested on him, he knew that he would also be raised. So here's a man on a mission, a man who knows his destiny, and he's also a man who is worthy of us putting our hope in. I remember from four and a half years ago that some of you quite like football. This year you might be hoping that your footy team will win the flag. Meredith's family are huge Bombers supporters, and this year they're hoping that the Bombers will win the flag. I've got a picture of the Bombers somewhere up on the screen here. Oh, wrong way. But hoping in the Bombers isn't really much of a hope, is it? Remember I said to you that hope is a full assurance and a confident expectation of good things that are to come? Now, there's no hope to be found in the Bombers, is there? In fact, you'd also say that they're hopeless at the moment. And even if you're their biggest fan, you probably agree with me this year. But let's just say, for some bizarre circumstance, you had some sort of time machine that allowed you to head forward in time to the last weekend in September. And on that last weekend in September, because of some miraculous event, it would have to be miraculous, the, the Bombers won the flag and then you zoomed back in time, back to the present day, well, then your hope in the Bombers winning could be confident and it could be assured, couldn't it? It will be well-founded because you know what's going to happen. And here in Jesus, this man on a mission, our hope is well-founded because he too knows what is going to happen. He knows the miracle of resurrection that awaits him. But our disciples, they don't get that, do they? They don't understand what's going to happen. I wonder if you notice the contrast between Jesus' self-sacrifice on one hand and the pride of James and John on the other. Have a look with me in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. In the face of Jesus' humility, James and John's request seems pretty selfish, doesn't it? If you look down at verse 41, you'll see that the other disciples take offence to it as well. It's a pretty horrible way to behave. But I suspect that it's a familiar way to behave as well. No matter how much we tried to avoid this kind of behaviour, I think if we're honest, most of us have had our own James and John kind of experiences. If you think about it, I think maybe you can see that we're all trapped in behaviour like this. The Bible tells us that this is sin and that we need to be freed from it. Many of us can probably sympathise with James and John. We're getting... Signals all the time, aren't we, that the things that matter in this world are status and wealth. Maybe you're hopeful that a better education will do it for you. Maybe it's a 
better house or perhaps it's a fitter, more sculpted body. Our world is full of misplaced hopes. Maybe you're putting your hope in attending church or doing some good things in the community as if these will ensure for you what happens in the future. Now at this point in Mark's story, for James and John, it was the desire for power and status that they were hoping in. I wonder for you, what is it this morning? Our world is full of unfounded hopes, isn't it? We know hopes are unfounded. We see that from the reality of life. You know, maybe you're hoping for a long life at the moment. And to help with that, you do lots of exercise and you eat a great diet. But we know from the reality of life that one phone call from the doctor, one set of test results, can ruin all of that. If you're putting your hope in wealth and working hard day in, day out, a stock market crash can ruin all of that. The rituals we hope in eventually fail. The world's full of unfounded hopes. I want to give you an extreme example. The Melanesian islands lie just to the northeast of Papua New Guinea. During the Second World War, one of the biggest battles that was ever fought unfolded on the doorsteps of those indigenous islanders who lived there. And to help with the war efforts, Vast amounts of cargo, as it was called, was dropped from the sky with parachutes and planes kept coming in with all of these things the islanders had never seen. Things like manufactured clothing and tin food and tents and all sorts of things like that. And the islanders, they might not have liked the war, but they loved the way in which the troops shared this valuable cargo with them. They got to wear manufactured clothes and eat new foods they'd never had before. And when the war ended, of course, the planes stopped flying overhead and they stopped dropping this precious cargo. So the islanders set about trying to entice this cargo to fall from the sky. They started doing things that imitated the practices they'd seen the soldiers before do. So they performed parade ground drills and they used wooden rifles. They made radio towers with bamboo poles and palm leaves and they carved wooden headphones with coconut shells and stuff. They cut new landing strips in the jungle and they waved flags trying to entice the planes to come in and land. They built life-size replicas of straw aeroplanes hoping that other planes would see them and come and land. But of course, no matter how much waving of flags, no matter how many parade ground drills they did, no more cargo, no more precious supplies would drop from the sky. Now, it's an extreme example, isn't it, of a hope that's unfounded. But our world is full of unfounded hopes. In the face of that, we need to place our hope today somewhere where it cannot be destroyed. We need to place it in a man on a mission, a man who has come to pay our ransom. I want you to have a look at that with me in verses 43 to 45 of chapter 10 of Mark. See, Jesus at this point has been reminding the disciples that the rulers in this world so often exercise their authority and status negatively. And he says, not so with you, in verse 43. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Can you see here how Jesus is turning the things of the world upside down? See, hope's not found in Jesus' eyes in worldly rulers or in the rich and the famous, but instead in the one who came to be a servant king. This idea of turning things of the world upside down is a great theme of Jesus, isn't it? If you think of the Beatitudes, think of the hungry who will be filled or the meek who will inherit the earth or the mourners who will be comforted. And here we see Jesus, the Son of Man, coming not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says three times in Mark that he must die. This is the only time he tells us why he must die. He dies to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I think most of us are pretty familiar with what the idea of ransom means. Most of us have seen a Steven Seagal or a Mel Gibson movie. You know generally how a ransom works. There's normally a captured daughter, and in exchange for her release, a fee must be paid. And sometimes in these movies, we also see how ransom can involve substitution. So sometimes one hostage might be released, if it's a sick hostage, for example, in exchange for a healthier hostage. It's an idea of substitution there. So we're familiar with that idea of a ransom being about substitution or payment or a fee. The biblical idea also includes the idea of compensation for an offence caused. Let me give you an example that comes sort of from Exodus. Um, If one of my animals goes out and kills your husband or your wife, now, this is very unlikely because I only have five little chickens, but if one of my animals does go out and kill your husband or your wife, according to Exodus, my life is then yours to take unless I pay a ransom to you that will satisfy the offence taken. So the biblical view of ransom includes the idea of paying a fee to release a hostage, switching places to free a hostage, and also the settling of an offence. Remember, the Bible tells us that we're enslaved by sin, trapped, and that it's impossible for us to pay our own price for freedom. Instead, we deserve death for our sin and we've offended God. So Jesus' death is no accident. He walks resolutely towards Jerusalem, aiming for it, knowing it will happen, willingly going to pay the ransom, being our substitute, paying for our sin, removing God's offence towards us. And over the next few weeks is our Easter series continues, no doubt you'll see how the events of Jesus' death and resurrection unfold. They happen just as he predicted in Mark. He was handed over to the chief priests. He was condemned. He was mocked. He was spat upon, flogged and killed. But also, as he predicted, he rose. He's a man worth putting our hope in because in him our hope is well-founded. And you'll see that over the next few weeks, I trust. But now I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5 because I want to show you some of the benefits that we get by placing our hope in Jesus. I want to show you these great things that are promised to us. So let me read to you from Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith, into this grace in which we now stand. 
and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I think what this passage is saying is that placing our hope in Jesus means that we have access to God. Back when I had a a real job as an engineer, I once worked in a refinery. Now you can imagine the oil refineries are dangerous places. And to get to certain parts of that oil refinery, you needed either a special permit or a special access pass. And without that access pass, there was no way that you could get to that part of the refinery. So you'd go up to the part you wanted to get into, you'd swipe your card, and instead of the little green light coming on, a little red light would come on, and over the speaker there'd be something about a security guard wanting to escort you away. Those who trust in Jesus, who call him their servant king, have an all-access pass into the presence of God. It's a great access pass. It's one worth dying for. In fact, Jesus had to die so that we could have it. And if we don't have that pass, our access is always blocked to God. We'll always get a red light. But with it, the way to to God is always open. It's a great benefit, isn't it? Putting our hope in Jesus gives us an access pass into the presence of God. But our hope is not just about access to God. Through Jesus, we have hope for today as we deal with the reality of living in this broken world. In verse 3 we read, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. I think maybe it's easy if I paraphrase these verses to say something like, When we're in the midst of suffering and affliction, we can brag about God's glory, knowing that these trials produce in us a strong backbone, which means that we can have hope that we will not shy away in shame. So we can have hope that even under persecution, we will stand firm in the truth of the gospel, knowing that it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to do this. So if you're a believer today and you want to share your faith with others, take courage from this. As you maybe hand out those cards telling people about our Easter series, as you invite others to come to church, know that the Spirit will help you, will help you to stand strong, even under persecution. So it's worth taking risks, inviting others, and standing in the truth of the gospel. In the next few verses of Romans, Paul goes on to unpack for us how it is that the servant king of Mark died and how his death makes us right with God, how it justifies us, how it pays the ransom price and sets us free. And I trust that over the next few weeks, as you continue looking at Easter, you'll see these things a little more closely. But right now, I want us to see how we can be sure that placing our hope in Jesus results in good things to come. So we read on with me in verses 9 and 10. It says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Can you see in these two verses here a movement? From the present to the future, and also from the hard 
to the easy. Let me try and explain this to you. In verse 9, Paul, who's the guy who was writing these words, is saying that because Jesus has already done the comparatively hard work of dying on the cross or of paying the ransom price, we could have full assurance and a confident expectation that on the day of judgment, we will be saved from God's wrath, a comparatively easy thing. And likewise in verse 10, because the ransom of the servant king has reconciled us to God, is a hard thing to do, we can have hope that through the resurrection of Jesus, we too will be saved. Comparatively easy thing. This is real hope, isn't it? Because Jesus, our servant king, has already done the hard work. And because of that, we can be confident, we can have full assurance that he will do the relatively easy work in the future. It's an illustration that some of you may have heard before, but I want you to imagine for a moment that a long-lost aunt comes knocking on your door one day and you open the door and she says, uh, can I come in? I want to share some great things with you. And Initially, you think she's a little bit crazy, but you think, okay, well, I won't be rude. And you welcome her in and she comes and sits down on your couch and she begins telling you that she has amassed enormous wealth and she wants to give it to you. So she says to you, I've got this amazing house, a great big mansion, got some awesome cars sitting in the garage, I've got a boat, a horse, all these things, I want to give them to you. For a moment you think, oh, this is a bit strange, but sounds too good to be true, but you think, oh, well, I'll keep entertaining this. And a bit later on she says, well, tomorrow I'd like you to come round to my mansion and I'll give all this stuff to you. Well, that night you go to bed and you think your aunt's a bit crazy. You don't really have any hope that this sort of stuff is going to come true. She's also said to you, by the way, and I need to tell you this, that among all the things that she's going to give you, the house, the car, the boat, she's also going to give you an old lawnmower. Anyway, you go up the next morning, get in your car, it's an old one, you drive around to this big mansion, and there the lady is, your aunt, and as she said, she starts giving you these things. She hands you the keys to the mansion, she gives you the documents to sign to change the car ownership over, she gives you the boat, the horses, all these great things she starts giving you. And then just as she leaves, she says, oh, by the way, I also said that I give you an old lawnmower. Well, that's at the repair shop and it'll be delivered in a few days' time. Now, the night before, you never really thought that she would give you all these great things. It was beyond your wildest expectations. But now this morning, with the keys in your hand to the mansion, with the paperwork in your back pocket for the cars... Of course you're going to believe that the old lawnmower will turn up in the next few days as well, aren't you? You see, the servant king, Jesus, has already done the hard things. He's paid the ransom price. He's cancelled the offence with God. He's taken our place on the cross. So our hope in him is well-founded, well-founded that he will also save us through his life. I wonder if you've thought about what it would be like to live in a world without hope. I think hope's all around us, really. But most of the time it's just futile or misplaced hope. It's like hoping in a straw aeroplane or hoping that the bombers are going to win the flag. We've got no assurance or no certainty that our hopes are ever going to eventuate. 
And despite this, we still go about putting our trust in things like status and wealth and power or prestige. Now, the temptation to do that is very strong. Even James and John, those disciples of Jesus, did that. But the reality is that most of what we hope in in this world, most of the dreams that we have, most of the ambitions that we have, will one day be broken open by this cruel world. And even if you do make it through the life with some of those hopes still intact, the reality is that death is the final destroyer of those hopes. So this Easter, I want to encourage you to take another look at Jesus, the servant king who came on a mission to turn the world upside down. The servant king who has already paid our ransom. He's already acted on the cross. He's done the hard work. He's given us an access pass to God. He's reconciled our relationship with the Father. Because he's already done the hard work. We can have real hope for the future. Hope that's not tied to ambition or wealth. Hope that we can be fully assured of. Hope that the promises of God will eventuate. And on the last days, we who trust in Jesus will be saved and that the world will be made right. Let's give thanks to God who's doing all these things for us. Father God, we thank you that in Jesus you have already done the hard work of reuniting us back to you. We thank you that you loved us enough to give us your son. We thank you for paying the ransom price. We thank you that those who believe in him, your son, can be confident that we will not perish, but that we will have everlasting life. Amen.